This episode of EMS One Stop is brought to you by Lexapol, the experts in policy, training, wellness support and grants assistance for first responders and government leaders. To learn more, visit lexapol.com. That's L-E-X-I-P-O-L.com. Hello and welcome back to another edition of EMS One Stop. I'm your host, Rob Lawrence, and I am here at EMS World Expo 2023 in New Orleans. Uh, we're recording and broadcasting from the exhibit hall here in uh, New Orleans. Uh, it's been an amazing time. And uh, over the next 30 minutes or so, we're going to have some amazing guests, some great discussion and talk about current topics, both operational and clinical. I'm excited to say that uh, I took part in a pretty cool pre-conference session yesterday here at EMS World Expo, and that was one of my favorite things to do at conference, which is to take part and be part of the faculty in the media pre-con. And the media pre-con is to take people that are perhaps a little nervous in dealing with the media or give their organization strategies on how to deal with the media and the press and obviously know what to say when the camera gets turned on and also to know how to attract positive media to your organization. And I'm delighted to introduce one of my faculty, fellow faculty from the Media Precon, and that is Alexa Jobson, who is the Director of Public Relations from REMSA in Reno, Nevada. How are you today? I am great, thank you. Excited to be at Expo. Indeed, so we had a great session yesterday. And uh, so why don't you just give us a sort of quick summary of uh, you know the day and, and, and what, we, what, what I think the students get out of it. Sure. So we had a really great session yesterday, lots of engagement, great questions and comments. And I think people were really interested to hear that we were encouraging them to identify those stories within their organization and proactively reach out to the media. We heard some folks say that they had a difficult relationship or they were worried about working with the media. But I think it's really important that we help them understand that once they build some of those relationships and make some of those positive deposits, when there might be tougher news to share, those relationships exist and they can lean on them to share that news. So that was one of the first things in is how do we develop that relationship with the media if all we've done so far is perhaps even been an organization that's no comment or shy away from it? What's the first step? So as we say, no comment is a comment. So you really want to avoid that as part of your media strategy and work to develop uh, some transparent and honest information when those tough questions come. I also think it can feel intimidating to pick up the phone and just reach out to the media, but they will welcome that. I'm confident. So you can give them a call, introduce yourself as the primary media contact for your agency, maybe ask if you can stop by the newsroom and meet the reporters and anchors and let them know the best way to be in touch with your organization and start to build that relationship and then start reaching out with some of that great news. Another great way to engage them is through our social media platforms. Make sure your agency is following those news organizations and then you can tag them in posts that you'd like them to cover, for example. So you mentioned social media and sometimes I think that social media can be a weapons grade platform, right? So as an organization, as an agency, should you have policies in place? Absolutely. You want to have policies in place and you want to have identified people that are trusted and trained about how to post on those social media channels. And you also want to have a strategy and a content calendar built out so that you're not just thinking, oh, I'll get to it. And then you never get to it or you get to it poorly. As you say, it's a very powerful platform. And so we really want to make sure that we put some time and energy and thoughtfulness into how we use it. Okay, so I'm going to pick out one of the things that you said there about creating content. And one of the exercises that we love to do on the media pre-cons that, we, that we've certainly run over the years is to create a content calendar. Um, because again, people say, well, I've got nothing to talk about. There's nothing going on in my organization. I have no news to spread. Also, I have no social media to put out. So how can we create that calendar? What should you do? 
So sit down literally with a 12 month calendar and just take it, you know, start slow, maybe two ideas per month, four ideas, six ideas. So that breaks down to about one per week. And you can just think about the recognition weeks and months within those, um, that calendar timeframe. So everything from, you know, sudden cardiac arrest awareness month to um, national immunization month, EMS week, telecommunications week, emergency nurses week, we could go on and on. And so if you just really think about it all the way from the messaging around New Year's and winter, for example, all the way through the hot months of summertime and into that holiday season. Um, there's a lot of opportunities for you to create some health and wellness content and be the experts on that, as well as look inside your agency and see what's kind of new and interesting and happening at that time of year that you want to share. Excellent. And also, so let's say, for example, uh, the news stations, you've become friends with them. You've got your media content lined up. They have a day where they come to you and go, it's a slow news day for us. Have you got anything? Should you have something up your sleeve? Absolutely. And at REMSA Health, one of the places that we always turn to is our education department. It's very easy for us to highlight our EMT and paramedic students and show kind of what technology and simulations and uh, scenarios they're running that day and give the public an opportunity to see how it is that we're preparing future uh, healthcare providers. Wonderful. So uh, one of the things that uh, we talked about, of course, when dealing uh, with, a, with a journalist is to, you know, have, have, a, have a good posture to be prepared to have, you know, not to use your hands like I'm doing right now. Um, you know, what are your top tips when you prepare someone to go on camera? Sure. So you obviously want to make their make sure that they're knowledgeable about the subject matter that they're going to be talking about. You want them to be a willing participant and able to kind of reframe and be positive about the organization and the content that they're going to cover. So, you know, there are two types of interview in my book. There are those where they're trying to seek information, perhaps, you know, something so, something in our day hasn't gone quite so well, interview type number one. Interview type number two is when we've invited them in and we want to, you know, show something that's that, that's good and wholesome in our organization. Again, whether it's a CPR class, whether it's car seat safety, for example, which is another good one. I mean, how should we be prepared to deal with those types of interview? So when you're dealing with the, the positive story and you invite them in, you definitely want to make sure that you are prepared and that you are going to meet all of their needs. So be prepared that they will want to shoot B-roll and get some footage of things or pictures of things in your organization, maybe in the back of an ambulance or in your dispatch center. So we really, especially when you're working with the television news media, want to make sure that there's great visuals to go along with that. In addition, of course, your subject matter expert being prepared. So that's for the positive stuff. And then when there's something difficult that we need to address, you really want to make sure that your organization kind of has its compass oriented before that tough stuff happens. And you want to make sure that you all are committed to transparency and honesty and timely communication with the media about those difficult things. Is there such a thing as off the record? Absolutely not. Anything that you say to a reporter, I would suggest that you consider is on the record and can be used in the news story. Indeed. And if you're mic'd, is it safe to, uh, when the cameras stop rolling, is it safe to have a conversation? Absolutely not. You want to assume the mic is always hot and um, you want to be mindful of what it is that you're talking about from the time that reporter arrives on property until the time they drive away. You should um, t assume that you are working with the media and that anything you say can be used in your news story. Okay. And of course, uh, an interviewer always asks that final question, is there anything you want to add to the story? Um, should we take that opportunity? Absolutely. I would say that um, 
it's really important for you to just spend a little time looking inside your organization, recognize those important stories that you want to share, and then make sure that you commit some time and resources to building those relationships with your audiences, um, having that uh, positive relationship in place will go a long way. And it's also important as an as a profession that we work together to kind of raise the profile of um, out of hospital healthcare and EMS. Alexa, it's always a pleasure working with you. It's always a pleasure interviewing you. But of course, uh, you're going to take over the mic now and interview one of our students from yesterday. Yes, I'm looking forward to hearing what she learned from the session and how she would encourage other people to make sure they attend. Okay, let's take a break and then go back to Alexa. Lexapol empowers first responders and public servants to best meet the needs of their residents safely and responsibly, serving more than 2 million public safety and government professionals in over 8,000 agencies and municipalities. Lexapol offers a range of solutions that includes policies, training, behavioral health resources, news and analysis, and grant assistance services for law enforcement, fire and rescue, EMS, local government, and other agencies dedicated to public safety. To learn more, visit lexipol.com. That's L-E-X-I-P-O-L dot com. So thank you so much for attending our pre-con session yesterday. Uh, I had the pleasure of participating in a group that you were in. But back up and tell me a little bit about how it is that you got to work in EMS. I think you were saying it's a similar story. I took an EMT class once I joined my organization so that I knew what they were talking about in meetings and understanding the terms that you they use. And so it sounds like you had a little bit of a similar experience. Yeah, so I actually became an EMT in 2018, and I was working at the Louisiana State University Vet School, and I was serving as their first responder on overnight shifts in case anything should happen. Um, fast forward a few years, and the day before the government shutdowns, and I had accepted a position at the Louisiana Bureau of EMS. Um, I now serve as their credentialing coordinator, and so I work with uh, EMS practitioners throughout the country, even the world, and we uh, help everybody get licensed. Excellent. And so tell us a little bit about what some of the takeaways were that you learned yesterday in the media pre-con session. Um, it was very interesting to work with a diverse group of people. Uh, we learned about making our pitch, knowing our audience, uh, using our media resources wisely, um, and then planning ahead and making sure we have that calendar uh, so that we can always have a story ready to go. That's great. We were actually just talking about that and the importance of having that media calendar. And so did you walk away from there with some ideas? Are you ready to reach out to the media proactively and engage them? So I'm not sure as, as a state agency how that would work for us to reach out to the media. But um, just a few moments ago, me and some other staff members that are here at the conference, we were able to roundtable some ideas and about how we would like to spotlight individual practitioners throughout the state and kind of re-engage um, those practitioners that serve Louisiana and reward those agencies for their great efforts and service throughout the state. Perfect. It sounds like you are an A-plus student based on that conversation that you had as a follow-up today. So thank you so much for attending the session and enjoy your first EMS Expo. Yes, it's my first conference and it's wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. Back to you. I'm here with uh, Brian Maloney and uh, who is the recipient of a major safety award uh, this year at Expo, uh, awarded by NAMT and also sponsored by Technimap. 
Take them out. And so congratulations, Brian, first of all. Thank so tell us about Plum EMS, first of all. All right. Uh, we're actually located uh, outside of the city of Pittsburgh in Allegheny County. Uh, we're a smaller service. We're primarily suburban. Uh, we have about 16 full-timer uh, employees, 10 part-time employees. Uh, we're a 911 service only. We do uh, about 3,300 responses per year. Uh, we have a great relationship with the community, uh, and uh, we're part of, uh, partially funded by them as well, even though we're our own nonprofit 501c3. Uh, and I've been working there for about seven years, and uh, I've been very blessed. Uh, we have a board of directors who supports us and a lot of the different uh, projects and endeavors that we go in through, uh, and a great team. Uh, and that's actually how, we ended, uh, how I ended up here today, uh, because of their success. Indeed, and uh, I'm going to get you to blow your own trumpet about your organization in a second because, of course, to win a safety award, you know, we're all about these days the culture of safety. We're all about getting those lights and sirens off, and hopefully we can talk about that. And so what features have your organization, you know, what have you got going in order to really be, you know, best of class? Uh we, uh, with our organization, one of the things that we do, we're constantly meeting, we're constantly learning. We do weekly meetings where we uh, have an opportunity to 100% meet with all our full-timers and a big portion of our part-timers. And each week we talk uh, just a general review. We talk and review uh, policies or procedures of the organization. Uh, and uh, we also review Pennsylvania protocols. Uh, and so during this time, then we pick a piece of equipment or a topic, or it could be a case review that we sit down and talk about. And so we're constantly learning. Uh, another standard that we have, uh, every shift that a paramedic works, they have to do four innovations uh, to help improve our success, success rate on uh, innovations and advanced airway techniques. Uh, and so uh, it's a kind of culture in which you're constantly learning. Uh, they challenge me just as much as I challenge them, uh, which I always appreciate. Uh, but it's a great uh, group of people uh, that uh, with experience anywhere from just a couple years to, uh, you know, uh, we have some play, uh, people part of the organization for 25 years. Uh, so it, uh, I can't give enough credit of the team that we have there because, they, they, you know, it's an incredible culture. They take care of each other. And when I first started working there, they said it was a tight knit family. That was an understatement. Uh, they, they really go above and beyond. And I can't give them enough credit for all that they do. So to create an overall culture of safety starts at the top, right? Mm -hmm. You have to have the buy-in from the chief, the leader, the director, whatever their title may be. I mean, how do you maintain that and keep it going in your organization? Uh, the biggest thing we do is try to lead by example. Uh, you know, especially in this ward, a uh, big portion of it was because of the fact that we are part of a national uh, collaboration in which to try to help, and in a sense, decrease the use of lights and sirens, both responding to calls and transporting patients to the hospital. Uh, and so when we did this, it wasn't just a I think or I feel. We had data, we had research, uh, and with help from all the different groups that we're working with, uh, and we sat down and we showed them why we're gonna approach this the way that we are. Uh, and also, we led by example. We got out the door quick, and we didn't use lights and sirens uh, unless they were truly warranted, uh, especially responding to calls. Uh, and that was one of the things that we showed folks, listen, getting out the door, our shoot time is the number one thing that can decrease our response times. It's not driving lights and sirens. It's not driving recklessly or speeding or not obeying the laws because that doesn't save literally but seconds. It's getting out that door quick from the time of dispatch uh, to the time our truck's pulling out of the garage. Our standard of plumb EMS, 60 seconds. 
from the time those tones drop to the times that truck is pulling out of the garages. And, and that's the, the, the goal that we shoot for. That's the standard expectation. And if I, uh, you come in to try to get a job with us, that's what we tell you right off that bat before you accept the position with Plum EMS. You have to be willing to strive and shoot for our goals. So lights and sirens reduction that we've had as guests in the past, uh, Mike Tegman, Dr. Remley Crow, um, all the good folk from NEMSQA. And obviously we've been very aware of the project and the program. So what percentage reduction, if you, you, know, if you can give me that sort of data, have you taken down your amount of uh, lights and sirens response? When we first started looking at the use of lights and sirens during transport to the hospital, which right there, that increases our chance of getting a wreck uh, threefold. Uh, and so it's very dangerous. And so when we first started it, we were at 26% of the time using lights and sirens during transport. Uh, but then when uh, we started this, uh, we're down to almost 2% uh, for transport to, uh, to the hospital. Uh, for response to calls, we're at about 46 or 48% of the time using lights and sirens when responding. We're down to 7% of the time now. Uh, and it's the kind of thing that we just constantly review, constantly talk about things. If you were to use lights and sirens during transport to the hospital, uh, it happened twice this week, which is almost two times more than we've done in the past, uh, is that uh, you automatically, within 24 hours, get an email from me. I get a follow-up from the hospital to, to let them, you know, let the crew know what the outcome of their patient was. I do a time comparison, and I provide feedback to these people to sit there and say, listen, did using lights and sirens truly make an impact on that patient? Uh, and same for every week, I post results of how the crews are doing with the use of lights and sirens, even responding to calls. Uh, and so we're constantly monitored, constantly doing feedback. And we talk about cases. We talk about, okay, do people truly think using lights and sirens made an impact? Uh, I never tell anybody that they're wrong for what they, if they chose to do it. But what I do do is challenge them and say, listen, I want you to be a better paramedic. I want you to be more aggressive. I want you to be stronger with your treatment and think that lights and sirens isn't always the answer. So citizens have an expectation that they see an ambulance, you know, I'm going to use the term flying. We never fly, but they always fly places. Um, did you have to convince the general public that what you were doing was obviously the right thing to do? Uh, not yet to this point, but what we've tried to do is make sure we're very transparent uh, and that we haven't sacrificed our response times. Uh, we have a 30 to 60 second difference in our response times by doing getting out the door quick uh, compared to using lights and sirens. So in the end, it doesn't make that much of a difference. Uh, the other thing that we did is on patient satisfaction survey, which 100% of our patient contacts gets a postcard from me saying, hey, the crews want to know how you did. And we have a question specifically on there for response time. We don't get lower than a four out of five uh, for our response or the marks on that. And the other thing is too, I've actually seen a lot of people respond on their surveys saying, thank you for not going lights and sirens through my neighborhood. Because a lot of times people see this also as an embarrassing situation that an ambulance has showed up in front of their house, their lights and sirens are on. Uh, and they don't want to draw that much attention. So they appreciate the fact that we don't come in screaming with our sirens and have their lights on, but we still are there quick. Because uh, once again, we're not sacrificing patient care. We're not sacrificing response time and we're there for the community. Wonderful. Well, you've given us some great takeaways for the reduction of lights and sirens. Obviously we can go and look at some of the sort of NEMSQA work yeah. and, uh, and, and obviously take away, but 
Plum EMS, congratulations on being a national award winner and Thanks. congratulations to you and to your team. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Excellent. So you can read all about that in the show notes, whether it's from Nemsquare or whether it's indeed the write-up uh, from the NAMT award winners. We'll put it all in the show notes. In the meantime, back to you. Still here in the EMS World uh, Expo Exhibit Hall and a firm favorite of everybody here and certainly a firm favorite of mine is Dr. Peter Antevi. How are you, sir? Rob, doing great. How are you? So you've been actually in the, uh, the, the center here delivering a lecture which... Uh, by the looks of it, had a lot of attendees. What have you been talking about this morning? So uh, it was a, a little bit of clickbait, but I had the title of the five protocol changes you're too afraid to make. Obvious question then, and this is an easy question. What are they? Okay, so the first thing we start off with is RSI versus DSI. A lot of people who do medication-assisted uh, uh, innovation use RSI. We stole from Jeff Jarvis at Fort Worth. Can I just say this sounds like an R&D project? It is, rip off and duplicate. So we do RSI, we do DSI, which is a delayed sequence, which we give the ketamine, we pause for three minutes, we maximize oxygenation and blood pressure, and then we give the rocuronium, and then we intubate. And it turns out that your hypoxia goes way, way down. So RSI should go away. That's number one. Okay, that's number one. Let's have number two. Uh, second, number two is refractory status epilepticus. Most people give midazolam, times one, times two, the patient's still seizing. What do you do? Drive faster, we would use ketamine. So IV ketamine or IM ketamine for refractory seizures. That's number two. The third thing is obviously whole blood. So people said it's too expensive, it's too complicated, too bad. Figure it out, get it done. It's, um, you're, you're basically reversing the murder rate, which they've done here. We have uh, 67 uh, cases and we have an 86% survival if you got the blood before your cardiac arrest. Pretty good. Amazing statistics. Uh, number three. Um, is dual sequential, double sequential defibrillation. This is the Sheldon Chesky's data from Canada. You have refractory V-fib. What do you do? You put, you, first you do vector change. You can change the pad placement. But then if that doesn't work, then you actually just shock them twice. Shock them 720 if you have a life pack at the same time. And he has shown doubling of the neurointact survival. Our own data since 2017 shows that we have a 42% neurointact survival rate for people who otherwise would have died at the hospital. So that's, that's pretty cool. Wow, okay, and next up? Uh, next up is antibiotics for sepsis. So a lot of people are fearful of giving antibiotics. Why? Because the hospital says we need to have a culture, a blood culture. Turns out that's not true. If the patient's hypotensive, they're fixing to die, as they say, and we in Palm Beach County can give the antibiotics within 12 minutes of the 911 call, and our own data shows that the hospital is giving antibiotics at 120 minutes. That's a tenfold difference uh, in, in that. So uh, antibiotics for sepsis are, I think, a, a, major, a major item. And finally. <laughs> well, that, there's a few more, but I'll, I'll do my last one, which is removing epi from shockable rhythms. Oh. That's number one. So we've done that. We use Esmolol for the refractory cases, but we, why give epi to the fibrillating heart? The other thing we did, call this number six, is we do not allow cardiac arrest epi for symptomatic bradycardia in children. So bradycardia is not really a rest rhythm, although the AHA calls it that. So we use push presser epi, a much lower dose of epi for that patient. So. Um, I think that EMS is a different specialty. You know that. I know that. 
the data coming out from the AHA is mainly hospital side, ICU side data. And it's time that we, we own this space. And that's what I'm pushing for here. We're back here in the exhibit hall at EMS World Expo. And I have to tell you that this summer I took a great book to the beach. And it wasn't a book on EMS, but it was written by my good friend, Doug Wolfberg. Doug, welcome. What was it about then? Thanks, Rob. It was about the Beatles. Now, hang on a second. You're an American. I'm a Brit. I should know more about the Beatles than you do. But having read your book, which was simply superb and amazing, um, you went to great lengths to do your research. Some of those stories, and you dove so deep into the history. Thanks. I did. I, I spent a lot of time over there, actually, in your old stomping grounds in the UK, uh, talking to folks, getting firsthand accounts, interviewing some direct witnesses to some of these events, members of the Quarrymen and the Beatles' original band before yep. they were the Beatles, and uh, and then just dug down on the forensic research to write the stories. It was a lot of fun. Right. So just to prove that I've uh, read the book, uh, Eleanor Rigby, okay, not only did she pick up the rice, but uh, we all thought it was a fictitious name that McCartney came up with just to, you know, create the song, write the lyrics, etc. But there's a quite a quirk to the Eleanor Rigby story. Quite a quirk. Not only did everyone think that was a made up name, the author thought it was a made up name. Paul McCartney for years said, when asked, I made up the name. I like the name Eleanor. I found the name Rigby. I put them together. Yep. Well, a real Eleanor Rigby was found in a graveyard in Liverpool, but not just any graveyard in Liverpool. No, not just any. It was at St. Peter's Church in Wilton, which is a suburb, the very place John's band, the Quarrymen, were playing the day he and Paul were introduced to one another. Eleanor Rigby lied buried yards from the place John and Paul met in 1957. So quirk or not, you have to get Doug's book to actually read into that and uh, let us know what you think. Now, of course, uh, we're going to segue back to EMS. And of course, you use the Beatles as, a, as the basis of some of the talks you've been given. I have. I, I put together a presentation called uh, Leadership Lessons from the Beatles, What EMS Leaders Can Learn from the Fab Four. And uh, that's a fun talk because there's a lot of multimedia stuff in it and just a lot of cool stories. And to find a way to translate that back to my other passion, which is EMS, uh, makes it a fun presentation. So give us your fab four takeaways, Doug. What were they? Well, one is to get the right people. Uh, there's a story about how the Beatles had a drummer for a couple of years before Ringo. Uh, he wasn't quite the right fit for that band. He's a good drummer, but uh, when they got Ringo in, they took off, right? So EMS, we tend to think if somebody has a pulse and a patch, you know, let's, let's hire them or let's bring them in. Uh, but we need the right people, right? So that, that's one. Um, one is to recognize your own limitations. Um, I tell a story about how the Beatles uh, sort of came on hard times when their manager died, but they, they weren't quite wise enough to know what they didn't know. They thought we can manage ourselves. And so it's, it's to also recognize your limitations and get the skills in that you need uh, if you don't possess them yourself uh, with your team. Yep. Um, another is to sort of... Um, to understand um, the b benefits of collaboration. Uh, the Beatles did great work as solo artists, but when they collaborated, the work was phenomenal. It was just unprecedented. And the other is to harness the power of healthy competition. Uh, John and Paul had a little songwriting rivalry and it produced hits, you know, songs like Penny Lane, Strawberry Fields Forever, trying to outdo each other for the benefit of the common good. Right. So uh, so those are some of the leadership lessons that I think the Beatles can uh, inspire EMS leaders for. 
Okay, so if you and your EMS organization are, here it comes, striving to make ends meet, you should uh, read Doug's book and also listen to the main points from his lecture. We should tell folks that the book is called The Beatles Fab But True. It's on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all the places you can buy books. But uh, you can get a signed copy on my website, which is fabbuttrue.com. That's an amazing segue, and we'll put all those links in the show notes on the platform that you're either watching or listening to us on. So, Doug, thank you very much. Thanks, Rob. And I'll say back to you. Welcome back. Yeah, I'm here now with uh, my good friends, uh, Chris and Anne Montera. And I have to tell you that I wouldn't be standing here doing broadcasting, podcasting, um, and to a degree writing and telling the story of EMS if it wasn't for these two people here. Because way back when, when it was a real technical profession, as opposed to these days where you can say, I'm going to do a podcast today, and therefore I'm going to go to visitpodcast.com and start a podcast. This was the days where it was quite a technical challenge. And uh, Chris, you spread the message decades ago. So talk about how you got into into podcasting, broadcasting, and, and telling the, uh, the EMS story. Well, first off, thank you. That was very sweet. Um, so years ago, years and years ago, there's Baxter Larman. Uh, sorry, you can't come to these shows. We're, we're, we're name dropping Baxter Larman just went past. Because you have to. Um, you can't come to these shows without seeing everybody, which is what I always loved. So um, years ago, there was a, and I think it's still on the air today, uh, a podcast show that was called This Week in Tech. It's very cool. Do they know it was a pod at the time? I yeah, there was, was just a cast, right? No, it was a podcast. It was because that, I mean, Apple kind of started that term, right? Yeah. Podcasting. So I, I thought, man, you know, it'd be really cool to do something about EMS. And the more I started kind of just ruminating with the thought in my brain, I'm like, you know, we need to have something in our industry, which is, so I started searching the internet. The only person I found that was doing one at the time was Jamie Davis, yep. um, who's since moved on to writing books, which is awesome. Um, and I emailed him and I said, hey, I want to start a podcast. He's like, cool, let me send you how to do it. I'm like, really? I'm like, he's like, there's no competition in this space. He goes, there's plenty of room for all of us. I'm like, sweet. So I, I started the very first one we, we recorded. I think we recorded on Skype and it was terrible. Um, I don't even know if the episode's still out there. It was so bad. Um, but as I start, started to get into it, um, I had to learn web development. I had to learn audio design. I had to learn uh, video because we moved into video later. Um, so about two years later, um, I, started, I started the podcast in fall of 07. So um, I came to the very first EMS Expo um, in 2009. And back then, we had these big mics and everybody's wearing headphones. And um, I think at one point, uh, Skip Kirkwood fell off the back of the stage, but that's another story. Um, and and it was just, it was just everybody. And no, Skip Kirkwoods were injured in the making of that show, by the way. No, 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 no. no. There was no liability at all. Um, and, and it was just fantastic to see the energy we could bring when you just bring people yep. in and you just talk about nothing. But, we, but, but what happened from that show is we started talking about everything, which was... We talked about important issues, um, mental health, uh, things that were going on in the industry that were just so cool. And I, I, <laughs> I was just happy to be a part of it. So you've sat and watched, and, and I've watched you man the technology behind the scenes, doing the best producer ever. So you've seen a lot of people being interviewed. And so, you know, over the years that you were doing it, you know, do you have any, any great memories of, of people that, that Chris interviewed that went on the EMS Garage or indeed came to Expo, in fact, with Chris and Jamie? Uh, you know, any, any, any memorable moments? Oh, there's so many from 
um, doing podcasting, talking about the very first community paramedic program in the country. And now we're hearing all the community paramedics that are around the floor and how many programs that we have and how many years later. Mm -hmm. um, I think meeting the people and yep. just creating these relationships as um, we get into new things here in EMS and into healthcare, just bringing those relationships together has just been absolutely fantastic. Yeah. And um, I mean, I'll never forget, like at one time we'd have a five camera shot and we would have four speakers and we would be bringing in lower thirds and switching back and forth between all of that. And, but we made it happen at the booth and it just was yeah. you know, so memorable to see it, now. It was, it was quite the contraption flying across the top of the booth. There was some sort of industrial level scaffolding and, uh, the camera's on there. Which we still have at home if anyone would like to purchase it. <laughs> okay, it's available in the Montero household in Florida, don't forget. Really and, cheap, uh, apparently. Um, well, you know, and I think the other thing, um, last year we lost a really great friend of ours, uh, Ted, who was a part of that very first show. He brought in all these cameras and he brought uh, Chris Eldridge in, who was, all he was was a technical guy. He didn't even know yeah. about EMS. And then he went on to do a lot of great things. We we did some stuff at Burning Man. We um, created a, a documentary series out of San Francisco. I mean, we did some, because of that, because of that experience, we just got to be a part of this community that you were, you were now an amazing part of. And I, I, um, I think just seeing the people now that are actually doing podcasts, it's so much better than when we did it. But I think you guys, but it's, it's, it's just telling to the to the people that just want to continue to tell the story. There's so much to tell about EMS that it's never it's always changing, and I think that's that's the best part of it. So, I, I, yeah. but without a great producer, you can't do anything. Well, indeed, and, and you are a great producer. I have the guy that's operating my camera, uh, Mark Daven Mark Davenport, um, MD, uh, who also, by the way, I'm very proud of him because uh, you've got a degree in cinematography, my friend, and that's that's like top top dog. That's really seriously um so anyway that's enough about him let's move back to us <laughs> you know you are a great host you have been i mean you 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 must be because you asked me questions got cogent answers out of me over for many years but what's the secret of being a great podcast and interviewer host i never wanted to talk you never wanted to talk no Thanks. i mean that's hard it's hard to not yep. insert your opinion when you're asking for it yep. and i learned that because very early on i would talk way too much and i would and sit and listen to yourself I did a lot of ums and ands and stuff. It was hard to go back and listen to that, yeah. but that's the way you learn. And so, and I and I learned from other people, Stephen Colbert. I mean, you I mean, you just look at all these great. I think you can see the resemblance, ladies and gentlemen, watching. There's a bit of a <laughs> bit of Colbert in here. There's no, there's none. But, but looking at other people that did great interviews, it's about asking a question that's just probing enough, and that you care about and you want to talk about. That to me was awesome. So actually, same question to you, because again, you've listened. And what would you say is a is a great skill for a podcaster and or presenter? Um, 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 um not to say, um. oh, thank you. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's one thing that's strategic about it is getting the right people that really energize each other around the table where you can feed off those questions and really like have that great like where you bring them all together i think um having whether we're competing about how the hairdos are looking or who has the best socks around the table but it's then you get down to the heart and pull out the real issues so it's making it really you know a very, you know, a great atmosphere, but then talking about the hard issues and really starting to see those changes to be made and watching that happen. Actually, I'm going to add one, if I may. And, and yeah. the thing I've learned over the years is you have to be a great listener. 
and because I actually really have to pay attention to what you guys are saying in order to ask the next question. And it may not be the one that I have written down because it may be something we want to explore or you know, a, a, an area that we want to take. And so you have to, have to listen. And uh, I never wrote down a question, not once. Not once in, the only time I ever, ever had to write down a question was if I had to ask a specific thing about, you're presenting here about this, so I could remember it. Yep. But always I wanted to be as off the cuff as I could, which is not, e I mean, it's not easy, I get that. It's not um, whatever it is, but that listening piece is so important. Um, being a parent helps too, because you have to listen to your kids. But I think also just, but that active part of then contemplating where you want this story to go. Um, so I think those those are all important pieces. You bring you are exactly right. Wonderful. Well, some top tips from veteran broadcasters and podcasters and the folk that actually blazed the trail for where we are today. So thank you both very very much. Uh, that's the end of this segment. And as usual, I've been Rob Lawrence. Thank you, Chris and Anne Montera. And back to you. Well, that's been a great show. Don't forget, if you are watching or listening to us, you can please hit like and subscribe on the platform that you're either watching or listening on. Remember, if you're listening to us on Amazon Podcasts, you get to hear what we talked about. If you're watching us on YouTube, of course, there's lots of great visuals, lots of great graphics, and some amazing atmosphere from here at EMS World Expo. So I've been Rob Lawrence. Thanks to all of our guests. Until next time, bye for now.